we've sort of seen since the last financial crisis a sort of proliferation of how we might explore technology to actually tackle some of those pressing and social uh, social environmental challenges as well. And although we've seen more tangible examples of what happens when technology can actually cause significant harm to people and planet, I think on the flip side, if we're really if we're trying to be very intentional and very conscious of the the limitations as well, but also the the sort of opportunities that we can see emerge with technology and with sort of a responsible design and innovation approach as well. Um, there's huge potential to sort of drive more positive outcomes also for more marginalized um, communities. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza Shah, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffect, a crowdfunding platform resourcing organizations shaping a benevolent economy inspired by justice and ethics. If you're new to our work, over the last decade, our team has enjoyed spotlighting organizations at the forefront of advancing financial equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now deepening this work through our Reinvision Business podcast to dive deeper into what models are working and shaping the next economy. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll amplify models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. We're starting this new season with Dharma Satyanathan to talk about all things tech for good. Dharma is a partner at Bethnal Green Ventures, Europe's leading early-stage tech-for-good impact fund, backing ambitious founders using technology to tackle pressing social and environmental challenges at scale. At BGV, she leads on community and networks, driving BGV's efforts to act with integrity on diversity, equity and inclusion and fuel the wider tech for good movement across the UK. Dharma previously worked for international NGOs using digital and data for good and has a background in international relations and global development. She's also a trustee at Jan, a non-profit building open source products and services for survivors of gender-based violence and domestic abuse. I really enjoyed this conversation and I trust you will too. Hello, Dharma. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend your time with me to talk about all things tech for good and to kickstart a new season of Reinvision Business. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really, really excited to be here. And Dharma, you do a lot. Um, you're wearing a number of different hats and it's just been so interesting following your journey for so many years. Um, and I'm just grateful that we finally got a time to just sit down and talk about all of the things that you do. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, whether you're advocating for the tech for good movement or stewarding work within tech for good organizations, both as a partner at Bethnal Green Ventures and then as a trustee at Jan, you really seem to have your hands wrapped around a crucial piece of the new economy that we're trying to build. And I'd love to understand, how did you find yourself so deep within the tech for good space and what pulled you to it? Yeah, that was a really good question. Um, I always feel like I fell into it, um, especially because it sort of started when I actually moved to London. Um, so Oh, where did it start? So I moved to London back in 2014 and I actually came to work in a whole different world, which was in the nonprofit and global development um, and humanitarian assistance sector. Um, but it's always been in digital roles, so always focused on advocacy and using digital tools and data. Um, so it was quite a wonderful sort of instance to come to London and then be exposed to quite a vibrant sort of tech community as well. So from then onwards, I actually started going to lots of meetups, including the Tech for Good London meetups, which are actually run by Bethnal Green Ventures. Um, and I guess it was sometime in 2017, which was the sort of time when I felt quite jaded by a lot of the, by, by sort of the lack of using tech to deliver essential services within the nonprofit sector. Um, and at the time, a job opened up at BTV, which I heard about at the Tech for Good London meetup um, back in 2017. And uh, so I applied and I switched the sector, which was quite a happy sort of coincidence. And um, 
I guess my uh, involvement with Chen is sort of is largely down to my friendship with Hera, who's the founder of Chen. Um, we sort of met through Empower Hack, which um, she founded with two really amazing women at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. And just a few years ago, um, she asked me to join her as the director for Chen when we set it up as a community interest company um, to a kick. Um, and since then, it's it's been a really joyous sort of occasion and journey. Um, we flipped the cake to a ICO, so to an international um, charitable organization. So gotten charity status for it fairly recently as well. And I now sit on the board of trustees, helping Chen mostly on strategy, fundraising, and more. But I think the 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 sort of variety of hats really. Um, I, I find myself in a really lucky position that I get the best of various worlds because Chen is deeply rooted in the sort of civil society space, whereas Bethnal Green Ventures is deeply rooted in the investment and the social investment space as well. So mm-hmm. having, yeah, having the opportunity to sort of see where you can take learnings and apply to one or the other sector and actually create the sort of platform to have more synergies is yeah, really, really great. Yeah, and then imagine just being on both sides of um, a business where you're working within a fund and then working with a founding team um, and an organization to apply some of those le- learnings across is probably uh, a, a very uh, fortunate place to to be sitting in um, mm, for, for on both fronts. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting how, you know, so many meetups can be incredibly uh, beneficial in terms of connecting you to the right people and right <laughs> opportunities. And I know that you've, you've done quite a bit of work in terms of, you know, organizing more tech for good meetups and encouraging more people to get in this space. Um, what, what do some of those meetups look like? Mm. Um they're quite varied. Um, so at the moment, they're all virtual. We're, we're sort of con- considering we're still in a pandemic. Um, they're still running online on Zoom, uh, and actually, it's been it's been two years since we had the last sort of physical um, right. meetup in London. But um, it, it it varies in the sort of format as well because most of the sort of engagement we see and the the London meetup community is now more than has more than 10,000 members and there's different sort of community organizers up in Manchester, in Bath, in the Southwest and other regions of the UK and Ireland um, that we're all connected with as well as part of the UK Tech for Good Network. But um, the London Tech for Good meetups are really around sort of building a platform to A, raise awareness and demystify what Tech for Good actually is. And essentially enable people to connect and network and really learn from each other and inspire each other as well. We've had some really exciting examples where someone was basically, um, we asked in one of those sort of meetups um, of people's examples, really tangible examples of what they've taken away from coming along to those meetups as well. And there were a a few examples that were super, super exciting and really show us the value of hosting these spaces as well. Someone, for example, said they came along to a meetup that was specifically focused on technology to tackle modern slavery and then really um, got inspired in hearing the story and uh, started coding herself, um, sort of became a self-starter in learning how to code and just quit her job and joined a tech for good startup. Um, on the other hand, we also had examples of people just saying that they came along to the tech for good meetups and then found out that someone who came along with them or who they met at the meetup also lives really close by so they now have a cycling partner which is really nice um so there's really i think in terms of the sort of breadth and the variety of the meetups as well there's just such a huge opportunity to just connect with others if especially if you are founders yourselves and because building a business on your own or at the very early stages while you're on your own perhaps is incredibly hard. So having sort of a peer support network and just being able to learn from others who've maybe gone and um, have done this already or are able to collaborate with one another is just really, really meaningful. 
meetups can be um, an incredibly powerful way and just ha- just building a community, especially mm. for entrepreneurs, which um, can be a very um, lonely and challenging experience. Um, but I, I, I really liked how you mentioned that one of the goals for the members has been trying to tease out what tech for good is. Mm. And, you know, while technology has made life a lot easier for many people so we can start businesses from the comfort of our homes we can um record podcasts um, (laughs) sitting in our pjs um we can earn an income or we can provide other people sources of income and and that has only been made possible because of the advancements in technology but then at the same time technology can also be very extractive it can be very exploitative um, and generally harmful to society as we've seen how things have played out with the large tech companies, whether it's Facebook, it's Theranos or Google. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious to understand, what do we mean by the term tech for good? Are these organizations that claim that label truly making the world a better place? Are they truly doing good? And how would one go about measuring that? Mm. <laughs> Great question. Um I love that you asked the question about the definition because that comes comes up time and time again. Um, and um, for us specifically, within sort of B2B as well as within Chen, um, the, the sort of term can be easily sort of broken down into actually meaning technology that is being deployed to tackle pressing social and environmental challenges. Um, it's always sort of good to remind ourselves that technology is neither good nor bad and definitely not neutral. And these are not my wise words. This is Melvin Kranzenberg who wrote up the rules of technology in the, I think in the 1980s. Um, but it does, we've sort of seen since, since the last financial crisis, a sort of proliferation of how we might explore technology to actually tackle some of those pressing and social uh, social environmental challenges as well. And although we've seen more tangible examples of what happens when technology technology can actually cause significant harm to people and planet, um, I think on the flip side, if we're really if we're trying to be very intentional and um, very conscious of the the limitations as well, but also the, the the sort of opportunities that we can see emerge with technology and with sort of a responsible design and innovation approach as well. Um, there's huge potential to sort of drive more positive outcomes also for more marginalized um, communities. Um, the measurement question is quite an interesting one, um, especially because very pretty much with BGV as well as early stage investor into businesses that are largely pre-seed and pre-product. It is sometimes incredibly hard to sort of determine will what they are trying to build actually work and will this have significant positive impact on people and planet, Um, which is why one of our sort of criteria is at the very early stages is to find the sort of alignment with the sustainable development goals, for example, but then going further into digging deeper into someone's theory of change and really seeing how they are thinking about um, where to place impact within their business model, for example, whether it's innate and um, can actually exponentially grow in tandem with the profits they're trying to seek as well. So there are very different ways to try to determine how to measure impact and how to hmm sort of manage the process forward as well, but giving someone the space to also think about the unintended consequences, especially as companies scale and actually having their products live on the markets as well, um, is one of the other ways that we really try to hone down and help the founders on our program as well to really think about responsible tech and responsible innovation in, in general. Do you think there are some guardrails that the industry could put in place? Yes, I think there are some guardrails we can put in place. And I hope that more investors will do that. Um, because we, uh, from from sort of a recent Amnesty USA report that sort of looked into the um, human rights practices and due diligence processes, event, event, the top 
50 venture capitalists across the world have, or the lack thereof, because they've identified that there are none. Um, and some of those sort of investment decisions that happen early on, because it's in private markets, um, and there's no there's no sort of quest for accountability in these particular stages as well, because everything is still private in that sense and not on the public market. Um, there's quite huge potential for harm to occur. So for investors in terms of guardrails, I think there's with the sort of movement around ESG as well, um, which focuses a lot on sort of uh, diversity and inclusion in the workforce practices, um, even the provenance of technology in the supply chain um, with the sort of emphasis there to, for people to adopt more ESG standards and practices into their investment decisions as well is actually a really great start of having those guardrails in place. But obviously also regulation should come into play um, and public accountability. So having having people actually having feedback loops available um, to actually alert someone within either within a company or a sort of regulator um, that someone might be causing harm is super, super helpful and a way to actually ensure that no harm is done. But ultimately, um, and that's also something that we try to help our founders is having anticipating the sort of risks that could occur with technologies is is something that people should be practicing from the get go and from before they even build their products. Um, and it's there, there's some really great sort of toolkits like Dot Everyone's Consequence Scanning or Omidiana Works Ethical Explorer to help people actually build this sort of mindset and anticipate um, what might occur, especially around sort of increased addiction or um different sort of dark patterns um for behavior design as well when you're when you're designing your products and services um so yeah i think yeah there are definitely possibilities to put these guardrails in place um but it also involves more people to actually embrace the fact that um we should do no harm yeah, and I imagine accessing some of the toolkits, while some some resources are made available for free, um, accessing like impact measurement infrastructure and accessing those support systems to be able to track those details across the supply chains can be expensive. And one of the roadblocks for social enterprises is lack of access to capital. Mm. Um, Village Capital, for instance, shared that 84% of social enterprises are unable to access venture or bank financing. And um, I'd love to understand, and just coming to your impact investor hat, how <laughs> are impact investors addressing this gap for social enterprises? Yeah, that's actually quite a bleak start um, from Village Capital, which is quite representative of what we see as well. Um, I think with social enterprises in general, because there's so many different legal structures involved, um, impact investing in general has played quite a significant role in actually furthering the social enterprise movement. And I think um, if we're looking at the UK market in, in particular, tax incentives of the kind for SEIS and EIS allowances or um, for um, the nonprofit equivalent, which is called CITA, I think, um, that those have helped getting social enterprises and, um, and generally tech for good companies off the ground relatively early on, because it does allow for people to make what they deem riskier investment decisions because there is a tax relief attached to it. Um, but in general, I feel like we're kind of in a filter bubble because, um, or at least I sometimes think I'm in a filter bubble because I we always see the news of female founders or people from minority backgrounds or from disadvantaged backgrounds in general not being able to access specific capital, whether it's VC funding or not. And that's still the, that's still the stark reality, to be fair. Um, there is still a massive lack of access to capital for a lot of disadvantaged communities. Um, and that's 
but there is some progress and there are some funds that are specifically targeting those communities to providing them with access to capital. There's still loads to be done to actually level the playing field. Um, but then I also think there is there are some ways to actually think about how for, for impact investors specifically to think about how to structure funds and investments that really help promote or preserve a social enterprise's mission and um, allow for ensuring economic returns, whether they go back to the community because it's a kick um, and has an asset log or whether it's sort of going into a co-op and furthers the workers as part of their co-op. Um, or is also um, going back to the investors on the on the on the cap table if it's a company limited by shares. I think there there are different ways where we can help each and every entity to actually be able to access more capital where it's needed as well. And not to forget civil society within the space because we do need a strong civil society sector to hold mm -hmm. government to account as well. So. Um, really looking into different types and vehicles and also thinking about structuring traditional debt, equity and program related investments to incorporate um, active capital allocation into mission driven businesses as well is, I think, very, very crucial. So Bethnal Green Ventures has been at the forefront of the impact investing space, and it's pretty well known in Europe and globally. Uh, your name comes up quite a bit in a number of communities that we're a part of. And I'd like to understand, how does BGV differentiate itself from other impact funds? Oh, that's a really nice question. Um, how do we differentiate ourselves? Uh, I would say... One of the sort of biggest differentiators is that we are probably one of the earliest impact funds, not just in terms of how long we've been around in the space, uh, it's been nearly a decade, um, but also in terms of the, the sort of investment stage and the, the stages of the company that we invest in. So um, again, largely pre-seed, uh, pre-product and pre-revenue. So we're usually also one of the first investors into those companies that we back. Um, especially because a lot of the in a lot of the founders in our portfolio have no previous experience of um actually running a business as well. So um in our last sort of um diversity inclusion uh survey that we did with all of our portfolio founders, we identified sixty-seven percent of all founders have our first time founders as well, which is really, really exciting. Um but I think other than that, um, we have quite a strong network, I would say, of mentors um, who who sort of bring in additional expertise within um, within sort of marketing, sales, partnerships, um, bringing in more of the financial and operational modeling side into for businesses as well. Um, which also extends to our team, by the way. We're now a team of 13 people, um, 10 women, three men, um, which is quite, <laughs> which happened quite naturally as well with sort of blind recruitment, uh, which is really, really great and seems to work. Um, but yeah, uh, I think one of the other sort of additional differentiators for BGV is that we that we're, we're, we're sort of on a journey together with the founders and we see them not only because we're on their cap table, um, but we're still minority stakeholders into, into their businesses. But one of the sort of nicest aspects of being part of the BGV community as well, that you have such a huge network of like-minded peers who are founders themselves and who've, who've done it before or who are now on the pathway to actually do it, um, building and launching a amazing sort of tech for good product or service. Um, and having that sort of rigor when it comes to impact measurement and management processes as well. So being able to tap into the B2B network, whether it's someone within our B2B team or as part of our extended mentor network and investor network as well, being able to just be tap into someone's knowledge so easily is super, super, super great um, and really helpful when, when you're just about to launch and uh, scale your service as well. Um, I think the other thing 
we we often get told um, that we are quite approachable, um, which I think is nice. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, you are, I, I think... can I can testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, which I think just a huge amounts of money flowing into the impact investing space now, um, but a lot of sadly because it's it's quite a lot of seed stage investors as well so um the the sort of threshold of actually raising capital from some of those funds is much much higher um to sort of cross um mostly also because you have to get to a certain stage and reach certain milestones in order to be eligible to actually apply for funding from from these particular investors so in those terms um because we we go in early and we we hope that we um, help founders actually maintain the sort of ability to really dream big, but be realistic about how you how you build your product and service and how much impact and profit it will actually generate. Um, but by actually allowing them to have that space to grow and to be able to connect them to further investment, for example, or to also put in more money into specific companies in our portfolio to help them plug the mid-stage capital gap um, is, I think, uh, something that makes Beautifully quite unique. When you say be realistic about uh, the profit and the impact that a company is creating, uh, we regularly see at Up Effect that a lot of founders will you know, claim to be changing the world in quotation marks, but there's you know very little research or interactions with their prospective beneficiaries to support those claims and that mm. really make the organization uh stand behind their uh statement of how they will truly go on to have that impact what are some characteristics that Bethno Green Ventures considers makes a social enterprise a responsible enterprise mm. really good question um <laughs> I think yeah, it's it's one of those things that just by by saying that you're doing good, you're not actually good, right? Um, so a lot mm-hmm. of even if someone is trying to seek those positive outcomes in the world, you also look at you also have to look at how you operate your company as well. So, are you a living wage employer? Do you have great benefits for the for for employees in your workforce? Do you think about the provenance of your technology? So what is the sort of carbon footprint of the data centers that you're using as part of the infrastructure of your business? Um, And so many other questions that come into play sort of around the whole ESG um, uh, circuit as well. But I think ultimately, um, one of the sort of key things we try to tease out when we make our investment decisions and when we interview companies um, that are this early, we try to determine the the sort of intentions and the motivations of founders behind actually building the business. And a lot of times we see examples of founders who have sort of the lift experience um, or have have been affected deeply by a particular social environmental problem and now want to help their communities in actually tackling this problem more effectively. Um, So I think one of the sort of key components when it comes to responsible product is definitely integrating the voices and centering the voices of the people you're trying to serve. Um, So if, for example, you are two founders two let's 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 take an example of two male founders two white men who are building a service to um reduce violence against women in india and you have absolutely (laughs) (laughs) you have absolutely no experience or have no sort of lived experience in india don't know anyone who is from that part of the world um, but you've been reading a lot of news stories about it as well. You can still go about and set up a company, but you have to ensure that however you build your product and however um, you go about doing your research even into the into understanding the problem area that you're trying to tackle um, is inclusive. Um, 
So I'm not saying that those two white men should not build this business, but I'm saying those two white men should consider how they might go about building a business that is inclusive and actually serves the community they're trying to protect. Um, it would especially that, be problematic if they went and built a for-profit entity where they're the sole shareholders. Yes, <laughs> exactly. They go into those communities and make a bunch of money just for themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sad that, I, that we have to come up with these examples, but they exist in the real world. Yeah. Um, so ensuring that, I think it was Chiyon Vura who used to say, who has the saying about, if it's not diverse by design, it will be unequal by outcome. And that sort of goes across oh, love that. every aspect of your business, whether it's your product design, whether it's the way you set up your business, whether it's actually the distribution and the promotion of whatever you're building and putting out in the world. If it's not inclusive by design, it will be unequal by outcome. I really loved um, that quote. And on the flip side, because obviously the impact is 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 a core piece to building a purposeful organization, but one of the hardest um, aspects of building a socially responsible enterprise is that not only do you have to focus on the responsibility that you have as a positive steward in society, is that you also have to ensure that the business is financially viable and are there any key strategies that BGB recommends to its founders so that they are able to make sure that the business idea is sound and able to generate revenue and will be on track to achieve profitability very early on in its journey? Mm, yeah, uh, really good question. Um, I would say like my immediate thought was like, do not build a business on an ads model <laughs> because that's just... Right. Yeah, that's a, ooh, that's a red flag um, for us, the B2B. If ads or in-app purchases in within within a mobile app, for example, is the only business model that you have in mind. Um, I think, especially for early stage founders, really thinking about the, the ways in which you can generate revenue and that's not extractive from the communities that you're trying to serve. So let's say you're working um, with people from low income backgrounds, you can't charge them a really high fee in order to provide access to a service um, in order to make right. money of a really um, disadvantaged community already. So really thinking about in, in that specific instance, it's also thinking about are there any other ways, for example, to go through employers and um, potentially thinking about a B2B model or um, bringing in different and or understanding what the sort of key decision-making unit in a purchasing decision could potentially be that would be lucrative in order to provide people people from those low income backgrounds with that particular service those are sort of things that you that people can start to think about early on um but that sort of goes goes hand in hand with sort of thinking about what might be potential sort of revenue streams as well there's so many different examples that go from product subscriptions that are affordable to um to even thinking about um, licensing forms, especially if you're building APIs as well. So what what could be, how could you, um, how what type of revenue streams could you incorporate that that fit with the type of product or service that you're building as well? Um, so yeah, I think yeah, one of the biggest things I would say for founders is mm. actually getting your finances right from the get go. So what is the sort of cost uh, what are some of the fixed costs that you have to cover in order to provide that service? And what is the sort of margin that you can create that would generate a profit or revenue for you as, as you grow and being able, and there's some really great sort of um, templates out there that really help with sort of financial projections as well and the sort of operational modeling, but also BGV has a whole two week sprint dedicated to the pro to the, to the, Sort of topic around operational and financial modeling as well to really help our founders early on understand how they might think about making a profit whilst also ensuring their services are actually affordable and accessible um, and inclusive. That sounds brilliant. Do you have any favorite 
examples of organizations that have gotten the balance of purpose and profit right? Um, definitely Fairphone. Um, I think so. F- um, for people who don't know, Fairphone is one of the few first businesses that B two B has invested in back in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen. Um, it's an ethical modular smartphone, and they're really they're, they're a really fascinating story as well. Um, sort of especially in a time where they didn't. The market didn't really exist because smartphone um, adoption was was just on the rise, and um, there were some really strong contenders. So there wasn't there wasn't enough evidence to actually see whether people had an interest to buy a ethical modular smartphone that ensures that a the resources that go into your phone are co- coming from conflict free mines and the minerals are sourced in a sustainable manner. Um, but then also ensuring that where the manufacturing actually happens, um, people are able to advocate for fairer working conditions and don't kill themselves um, because those are really tragic conditions that people work in in, mm-hmm. in those manufacturing companies. But then also looking at the other spectrum of the supply chain, so looking at how to massively reduce electronic waste going into landfill, so hence those sort of attempts to build a um, modular smartphone as well. And um, when we sort of invested, when we made the decision to invest into the company, they started a simple crowdfunding campaign to actually see if there's a really strong demand for the product that they're building. And uh, that gave them a lot of evidence and gave us a lot of evidence to actually say, yes, there's there's a product out there. I'm not biased but crowdfunding <laughs> is a great way to do that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Who knew? Um, <laughs> Who knew that that is possible? Um, but um, they have, they've become a profitable business now. Um, so uh, really worthwhile checking out the impact report they published last year. Um, but I also read out challenges to the industry because it is, they have proven that it's, possible to build an ethical modular smartphone um so there is no there's no excuses from the the sort of mainstream competitors that are really really popular um in the world to actually not do the same but um they have ensured that their business model is really vested around the idea um of selling the the number of modules that i have in terms of Sort of, for, for example, in people buying a camera and instead of having to buy a whole new phone, um, which actively ensures that the, the device is actually not going to landfill, but people can just reuse certain parts of the phone um, to, to continue using that one um, smartphone set for a longer period as well. So the, the selling, the sales of the different parts is one of the ways they can ensure that their impact is also growing. Um, but generally, it's just looking, they just really looked into how they can integrate um, the 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 their impact, how impact is really at the core of their business model as well. And that's that's incredibly worked out in their favor because they have now um they've now also come to the development of the Fairphone 4, um, which is the fourth, as the name says, the fourth iteration of that smartphone, and have absolutely smashed it when it comes to also thinking about um, what types of partnerships they have to engage with in order to provide people with access to broadband that is carbon neutral and climate positive. So they've partnered with Honest Mobile, for example, to ensure that that happens and really looking into the whole ecosystem as well. So I think as founders, um, there's just such value to actually understanding a who's already out in the market and who you can collaborate with in order to ensure you can achieve maximum impact within an ecosystem as well. But also crucially when it comes to your own finances as a business to ensure that impact is really at the core of your business model and that it's not just an offhand of buy one, get one free or buy one, donate one models because you see a lot of those in the in the sort of social enterprise or tech for good space as well. And those are not... I don't want to dismiss them because they also contribute to positive outcomes in the world, but that's 
not necessarily the best way to approaching how you build a profitable and very impactful business. It's funny how so many of us clutched on to the one for one idea when Tom's first yeah. introduced it. And um it's interesting how uh so much has changed since then. And mm-hmm. we've re- realized that actually, whilst beneficial in some ways, um, there's always learnings, opportunities for us to learn and evolve when we engage in, in this kind of work. Um, and especially to listen to the community at all stages and see whether the work that we're doing is truly contributing in a positive way. And mm. it's actually funny you mentioned Fairphone. Fairphone was actually one of the earliest examples that I landed on on a social enterprise that was just mind-blowing in so many ways and it's interesting to see how they've gone from strength and again they started out with crowdfunding so it it works (laughs) yeah I mean I won't I won't um, spend too much time talking about (laughs) crowdfunding but uh, one of the great benefits of crowdfunding is it positions you for um prospective investment um, mm-hmm. because it's a great marketing tool it's a great way of seeking validation from your potential customers and from your community and a great source of um equity free capital if you're looking at rewards-based crowdfunding mm. anyway <laughs> switching gears <laughs> a little bit and coming to your work at jan also me being of pakistani origin i just love the name which for our listeners it means solace and peace in urdu which is just mm-hmm. so fitting for the work that you're all engaged in can you please shine a light on what your team is working on at chan yeah so um chan I, 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 I totally agree with you i love that that the word solace just ultimately really describes the sort of feelings we want to transpire with the sort of experience going through and using the products and services that Chen brings about as well. But for our listeners, Chen is a global nonprofit organization, which is run by survivors and allies from around the world. Um, And uh, within Chen, we have sort of a large volunteer network as well. And um, we're, we're sort of in the business of creating open source and survivor centered and very intersectional resources to support the healing of survivors um, who have experienced gender based violence and domestic abuse. Um, it's a charity that was set up by Hera Hussein uh, in 20, in yeah in 2013, um, initially as a sort of volunteer run tech for good project, but over the years. Um, and I uh, remember uh, Hera went full-time a couple of years ago and since then it's grown to this really amazing hybrid organization that operates globally with a growing number of staff. Um, there are some really amazing people in the team now um, who are sort of shaping the work that Chen does on a, on a global level and really um, focus and center survivors' experience at, at the heart of everything that we put out as well. Um, many of the volunteers as well are survivors themselves and really want to really want to bring a deeper understanding of care and the very sort of non-linear experience of um, healing um, from such trauma as well into into the sort of mainstream. And I think one of the sort of biggest and most wonderful things about working at Shen is um, that really lift experience um, and survivors' voices are at the core of the governance model and strategy as well, and really shapes how the organization is um, is is being run and um, who we serve as well. And everyone who works at Chen is really we're we're all sort of unified by the sort of bigger vision to contribute to a feminist future that is free from violence and abuse. And a lot of the work at Jan happens out in the open. So you're building in a very public way. What has that been like for the team? And what does or should good organizational transparency look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I say this a lot. Uh, Shada, you're just asking really great questions all throughout. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when it comes to the, the sort of open, or we often hear back from people that 
that we're quite radically open as well and and people love it which is really great to hear um and, but i think when it comes to that sort of organizational transparency and building publicly and in, in in the open um i think it's just one of the best levers to actually affect change within systems of practices as well um and just being able to share more openly on how we're working, how we're centering survivors' voices, how we are able to pull in different uh, stakeholder communities together to actually deliver some of the work that we're doing as well has been so significant and just being able to share with others um, and learn from others as well. So we love the work that the Engine Room did, for example, on their strategy and Mozilla um, Foundation on actually publishing their OKRs quite openly as well. Um, and we take sort of inspiration from practices that exist already, but put our own spin to it. So for example, at the moment, we've got our strategy that we're shaping for um, the next three years out for public comments as well, for people to actually let us know if 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 they see Chen going in the, into the sort of right direction, even when it comes to where we want to have funding from because we're so dependent on grants as well. Um, but then there's even even questions of like which grant funders can should we apply to and where there might be still some sort of notions of maybe don't take money from this particular organization because X, Y, Z. So being able to publicly go out and share those, um, yeah, share those practices, share those comments, share our vision for a feminist future free from violence and abuse is just incredibly powerful for us to not only have sort of a feedback loop in place, um, but also sort of help us in guiding the direction that change should take as well. It's so inspiring to see the work that the team has put into Jen and, and the results that it's created for so many survivors of domestic abuse. Mm, and you. yeah, I hope um, Jen continues to inspire other founders that are looking to build tech for good businesses and tech for good solutions of their own. And I imagine it will, um, especially with some of the resources that you um, put out as an organization. Mm. What is some good place for a founder to start their tech for good journey? Mm. Um, that's that's Yeah. Again, good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where to start your tech for good journey? Um, multiple places really. Um, so if you really in the very early, early, early stages, so just have an idea, um, there are some funders uh, like uh, the Paul Hamlin Foundation who have, I think it's a Paul Hamlin Foundation, don't quote me on this if, if I'm wrong, but um, they have a specific grant, um, which is called the Pioneers and Ideas Fund, which is really looking into here's some money to test and prototype your ideas, which is really great. Um, so I would suggest to founders to start there um, if they're just at the sort of ideation stage um, and come along to the Tech for Good meetups or join the various sort of Slack communities within the Zebras community, for example, or the Tech for Good global Slack, um, which is a great place to just bounce off ideas with others uh, who, are, who have similar sort of ambitions. Um, if it's founders who have a bit more understanding of what they want to build and how they want to do it and want to explore the different markets a bit more, I would say check out BGB um, e-learning course and building a tech for good business that we've launched together with Tech Nation on their digital academy. It's a free e-learning course. Um, and otherwise, uh, yeah, find yourself some amazing people um, is, would be my main advice. Uh, there's some excellent sort of founder communities for whatever vertical that you're in. If you're building sort of, if you're a female founder, check out Femtech. If you are um, a founder with absolutely no understanding where to go for funding, check out the Landscape Receive Anonymous Founder Slack community, which is 
such a pure gem of <laughs> great insights all on an anonymous basis. So you actually don't know if your potential competitor is helping you find an accountant um, or helping you with sort of your growth strategy as well. So there are loads and loads of places where aspiring founders can go to um, if they want to build tech for good solutions. But also if you're crucially looking for funding for your um tech for good business that is a company limited by shares and registered or where you're able to register in the uk come to b2b we'd love to um yeah we'd love to chat where can our listeners connect with you uh <laughs> many places but ideally um over email um if you have a specific idea tech for your for a tech for good business that you want to discuss um it's dharma at bethnagreenventures.com or simply go to our website bethnagreenventures.com and there's a type form available to sort of give us a bit more context as to what you're building and to sort of see if it's a fit with our investment thesis as well um otherwise yeah uh slide into my dms i'm very active on twitter <laughs> anything is possible dharma thank you so much for taking time to re-envision business with us and Thank you ever so much for sharing all the different ways you're advancing the tech for good movement and the work that you're doing. I trust so many will feel inspired to join after hearing all about the different um, activities that you're engaged in. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to Rohan Singhal for editing this episode. To ensure you are notified of future conversations on impactful strategies and organizational practices, please subscribe or follow Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you enjoyed our episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your community so that others can learn about the incredible work that so many people are stewarding to build a better future for us all. You can connect with us and learn more about our work at www.theuppereffect.com. Thanks again for listening.